You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And I'm Denny Burke, the President of CBMW. And it is our pleasure to welcome to the program today, Matt Kennedy, who is the pastor of Church of the Good Shepherd, which is an Anglican ACNA church in Binghamton, New York. He and his wife, Anne, have six kids and co-host a podcast called Preventing Grace. Matt also co-hosts another podcast called Stand Firm. Matt, thank you so much for being on the program. It's a great honor to be here. I'm so thankful for CBMW. You guys have been a great help to us, to my wife and I, for years. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that. And we kind of have a twofold purpose here in uh, calling you to be on the program today. Uh, Number one, we want to talk about what's going on in the worldwide Anglican communion with their recent decision, at least in the church of England to um, authorize blessing uh, prayers of blessing for same sex marriage. Um, That has just sent a it's roiling through the Anglican worldwide Anglican communion right now. And I want to have you talk about that and address that. Uh, But also, and this is the other reason we wanted you to come on is that we wanted you to talk a little bit about your testimony in ministry and how you got to where you are now in Binghamton, New York. And because you've kind of already lived out this controversy over the course of your ministry, uh, now we're seeing something, um, we're seeing this fissure over gay marriage and the moral status of homosexuality, um, you know, divide the Anglican communion. But this has already been a profound part of your testimony. And so I was just hoping you could tell our listeners a, a bit about how you came into ministry and then, um, what church that took you to and your whole story as this issue has is un- unfolded in your life. Sure. I'd be happy to. I, uh, I was, I've been an Anglican all my life. I was, I was baptized into the Episcopal church at three years old. I, I attended church. My, my dad was not a believer. Uh, my mom was, uh, is, and they, they both now, they both are now, but my dad insisted on going to church every Sunday with us, uh, so that was a very good thing. I heard all the all heard heard very good things growing up. I didn't believe any of them. Uh, I left for for college, and I threw all the shackles of the old uh, religion away. And it wasn't until after college that God brought me through a series of different uh, crises in my life to the point where I was in despair, and I got down on my knees and I asked uh, Jesus to save me and forgive me, and He did. Uh, it was a great the best day of my life. And I can, uh, I can remember trying to figure out what, what do I do now? Where, where, where should I go to church? And it just so happened. I found, uh, the one or not the one, but the, there were very few by this time, Episcopal churches that, that were solid. And I was living in Houston at the, in Houston at the time. And I happened to find walk into just probably the best church I could have walked into, the pastor there became my mentor and really gave me a sense a seminary education before I went to seminary, which was necessary because I think he knew that if I was if I was to go to seminary, the bishop would send me to one that was very liberal, uh, which is what he did. But I went in prepared, equipped uh, to so that my faith wasn't shaken and I was able to to uh, contend with some of the professors who were good professors, but just uh good in the sense they were academically good, not good in the sense they were solid orthodox good. Um, after seminary, I met my wife there in seminary, which is another good thing that came out of came out of that. I met my wife, Anne. Uh, we then were placed in an open uh, parish. It didn't have a pastor. It hadn't had a pastor for three years. 
in Binghamton, New York. And I got there and I somehow in the, the uh, interview process hadn't realized that there was only really one person there who knew and believed the gospel out of out of about 50 people, 47 to be exact. One person who knew and believed the gospel. Everyone else, I'm sure they'd heard gospelish things, but th there wasn't really a believer there. Um, so it was it was my privilege and honor to be able to start uh, preaching the gospel and working through texts expositionally uh, on Sunday mornings, which hadn't been done there ever. Uh, I I had the privilege of our, uh, starting a few Bible studies and, and people started coming and uh, God was working through that process and bringing people to faith. Uh, and the, things were going well. We were adding, God was adding people to our numbers. And then in 2003, which is a year after I began serving there, the Episcopal Church voted to confirm the election of Gene Robinson as Bishop of New Hampshire. And Gene Robinson is a, a, a man who was at the time in a partnered gay relationship. Uh, he's since, quote unquote, divorced his, his partner, but um, he's still uh, gay. Um, and that was a huge thing because uh, Episcopalians and Anglicans in general understand the office of bishop to be an office for the whole church. It's not just a localized localized office so if you elevate a man to the office of bishop who is both living in a way that's contrary to the scriptures but also teaching in a way uh that is that is contrary to the scriptures you have you've said as a church well this man is actually uh doing and living in a way that we would want to affirm and we would say is consistent with with the christian faith and, and that caused ripples uh, rips tears throughout the communion worldwide um, because everyone recognized or most of the provinces at the time recognized what a serious thing had happened so uh, i was i was 29 i believe 28 29 somewhere in there and i was on vacation when the news hit and i i, I i'm i was arrogant uh, as, as a young man uh, I, I realize that now when I go back and listen to myself preach and I look at some emails I sent that were it's just crazy. Um, but I, I decided to go back and, and preach uh, a sermon on Romans 1 and talk about what a terrible thing the Episcopal Church has done. And I, I think I, that's what I should have done. I just maybe not should maybe I shouldn't have done it. Romans way 1, did, did, it. You, did you preach the text where Paul, you know, prohibits homosexuality? And yes, that's what you. OK, you went right at it. Okay. I went right at it. Went right at it. Um, and we lost 20 people after that, after that sermon. Uh, and I, I was, I was devastated. I, I really thought, oh, this is, the whole church is going to collapse now. Uh, I've made a terrible mistake. And, but, uh, God, God is gracious, uh, to, to us and to me. And actually that was, I know it's cliche to say, but losing all those people right off the bat was the best thing that could have happened to us. The church was refounded on a solid on solid footing um god god the, the people who stayed were by that time genuinely believers or at least genuinely wanting to know more about about jesus so uh we from that point on had a foundation that that served us incredibly well in the, in the coming in the coming years um and i just you know I, I, I was saying before we got on it as a young pastor um i i couldn't have had a better better training experience seeing how how god's word is so 
powerful to change a group of people. Uh, like I said, I go back and listen to sermons I was preaching, and I, I don't think I'm a good preacher now, but, but it's kind of embarrassing to go back and listen to yourself. But I was preaching to the text, and and God, God did an amazing, miraculous work in in the church, and He He just He not, not only transformed individual lives, but He transformed the whole uh, the whole congregation. Hallelujah. And, Matt, I find that timeline fascinating. We're talking about 2003, so 20 years ago, a few years after Bill Clinton signed DOMA, you know, a full decade or more more before Obergefell is handed down, this is taking place in the Episcopal Church here in America. Um, did you feel like did you feel that context as you're as you're going through or did you did you kind of see this as what uh, was coming down the pike for the rest of the the country. We thought. I remember in seminary, some of my seminary classmates, of course, agreed with the direction the Episcopal Church was going. But I, I thought naively, we have a good 10, 15 years before anything like this actually actually takes place. So I, I, I didn't know that I was joining the clergy of the Episcopal Church at the moment when this this massive fissure would would break open. But there were, I mean, it, it, these things don't happen in a vacuum. So of course, there were there were aspects of the of the Episcopal Church that were were clear and clear signs that it was about to it was about to do this. Is, is that your question? Is that what you're asking? Again, just thinking of you know what's going on in American history at at that point. You know, here we are in 2023 talking about what's going on in the Church of England uh, is now making this decision to bless same sex marriages. So not even going the full, you know, stride that the Episcopal Church made 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, setting aside the, the question of, and I'm careful how I phrase this, setting aside the question of what's true and what's not, just on a pragmatic, a pragmatic uh, assessment of the situation, having the Episcopal Church do what the Episcopal Church did so long ago and, and seeing how it's essentially collapsed as far as numbers go, you would think that that, that other churches, other provinces would say, you know what, maybe we should, maybe we should hold back a little bit just on a, just on a pragmatic from a pragmatic perspective and and not go down that route but uh, yeah it's, it's Matt Matt what happened in your church um tell us about what happened there with you and the stand that you all took so we decided that since the worldwide anglican communion I, i'm sure you're going to ask me about what that is a little later but since the worldwide anglican communion was was really raising uh, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, fire and brimstone against the episcopal church we said, let's wait until the next general convention of the Episcopal Church to see whether or not the, the worldwide reaction might cause our our denomination to repent. Uh, so we and then the, the next uh, convention was in 2006. And I, I was in there. I was there in person just to see what would happen. And it, 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 the, not only did the, the Episcopal Church not repent, but it it uh, it, it doubled down. <laughs> Uh, we, so I went back, I'd been in discussion with my bishop who was very liberal and, uh, I, I had told him that if, if that happens, that our church would have, we wouldn't be able to continue going in, in the same direction. And, uh, he and I had been in a, in a, in a friendly, but, uh, friendly opposing stance, uh, with the, with one another up to that, up to that point. After 
after the uh, the convention, I I invited him to come and talk to me, and I we sat down in the library at our at our church, and I opened up the texts to the Bible, and I said, Bishop, you know, I know you've read this, but but uh, can you explain how, why you you voted in, in the way that you did, and and why why you've continued to um, support the move that the Episcopal Church is taking? And uh, he, I think I was looking at First Corinthians 6, 9 at the time, and he said, well, the Jesus I know would never have said those words. The Jesus I know would never have inspired those words. And we prayed, he said, for 30 minutes as bishops before we, <laughs> before we made the, uh, the go-ahead vote. And the whole, we just all felt the Holy Spirit moving. And, and so, you know, we had, to, we had to obey, we had to obey the Spirit. So at that point, I just knew we were we were talking about two different faiths, two different two different Christianities. Um, and I said, well, we this is this is not attainable uh, for us in this denomination. The way the Episcopal Church works is the uh, uh, the a lot of the a lot of the parishes have their own deeds to their property and the the. Some of them actually have ownership as well. Others uh, would they have their, they own their property, but they're they're kind of holding it for the diocese. Now that's that was what I just said to you was not as clear back then as it is, as it is now. There had been a canon passed in the seventies that essentially said the diocese is the real owner of, of of church properties unless there's some special legal arrangement going on. Um, but a lot of parishes just looked at their deeds, said, hey, our name's on the deed. We're we're occupying our building. We're paying the bills. We're doing all the things uh, necessary to, to maintain the property. There's no reason why this why we'd have to give up our property if we left the Episcopal Church. So uh, uh, to avoid any kind of fight like that, my bishop and I finally said, OK, let's let's set up a protocol where uh, we can leave. And as we leave, uh, we'll maybe give you some money. And not not buying our property because it's our property. We're going to give you some money um, to help lay the cost of this of this the, the loss bishop, from your perspective. The mm -hmm. bishop was going to give on your church, um, the Good Shepherd Church, money. Is, is no, we were going to give the bishop money. So you were going to give the bishop money. Okay, okay. So essentially, in his mind, it would be like we're purchasing the property. In our mind, it would be like we're saying, "Please let us go and not <laughs> and not sue us." Right. Um, that was the idea. So we worked up a protocol for that to happen, um, and uh, when when the time came for us to leave, the uh, the bishop uh, had had I think an intervention from the episcopal the main the uh, the episcopal church office, uh, who the, the the presiding bishop at the time, Catherine Jefferson Shorey, was taking a very strict line against property people leaving with their buildings. So he essentially trashed the uh, the protocol that we had, and he said, "You have you guys six months, I think, to vacate the property." Um, and wow. that was a that was a complete surprise to us. We had no idea, and it's not just it's not just the church building; it was also my house, and um, and we had a pretty good endowment at the time, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. Uh, so we said, "Look, we can't. We had nowhere to go. Um, I don't like going to court, but we have to defend ourselves because we really don't." We're, we're stuck uh, financially. And so we, we did defend ourselves. Um, 
we lost after two years. And I'll never forget the day that I got the call from our lawyer. I was at home writing my sermon and he called and said, well, uh, the ruling just came down. Uh, we've lost everything. And the way the wording, the ruling is, is, is written, you could have a sheriff at your doorstep today to take away, to take the keys and to kick wow. you out of your house. Oh my word. Um, so that didn't happen. Thanks be to God. Um, but we immediately started packing up our stuff in the house. Didn't know where we were going to go. Prisoners started coming over to help us pack up. Uh, we had to go to the church and get what we could that belonged to us. All the real property in the church belonged to the Episcopal church, unless we had actual had purchased it or uh, had proof of ownership. So we had to go through carefully and say, okay, what's ours? What's the Episcopal churches? Um, to make a, a long, long story short, it was that during that week I was, we were praying. Some, we had nowhere to go. We had nowhere to worship, nowhere to, nowhere to sleep. Uh, we, we were sleeping in the house, but that that could change any minute. Uh, I had four kids at the time. Then uh, a, a Roman Catholic priest gave me a call, um, and he said, "Hey, I've read in the paper that you were you're being evicted." And he said, "Well, we just." We just merged two parishes and we have a church building and a school building and a huge parking lot and a, and a, and a rectory or, or a place for a parsonage uh, just sitting there empty. So why don't you guys move in there? And I said, we, I said, we don't have the means to even pay rent right now. And he said, oh, well, you don't have to pay rent. Just just pay us utilities and move right in. And it, it was it was and we can he gave us permission to worship in their sanctuary free of charge. So uh, from from that moment on, uh, we had, I think we only went one week without a place to worship on Sunday mornings. We worshiped in a Baptist gym. But from that point on, we were we were in the building that we have subsequently purchased. Um, uh, because is we, that the we, building you're in now? The same building we're in now. In fact, uh, the building, and this is going to sound really low because it, being in New York, property prices are really low, at least where we are. But the building, the whole, all the grounds are appraised at $1 million. And the, the, the Catholic priest reduced the selling price to 500000 to give us wow. equity. Yeah, yeah. And it was just a really generous man. And um, uh, we have been here in this that building and that property ever since. What's been the story of the building and property that you vacated then, the Episcopal yeah. Church? So we offered, we did, I mentioned earlier, we were making offers to, after the, after the protocol fell apart, we started just sending offers up. Could we pay, purchase it for this much? Can we purchase it for that much? Can we, um, can we find a way to. So you up your out? price. Yeah. So we, um, we offered several, made several offers that were just flatly refused. Um, and after we lost the lawsuit, after we found a new home in 2011 i was driving down the street past our old old church and i saw a crane <laughs> taking the cross off the top of the off the top of the steeple so i i, I turned in and uh there's a man there who i knew he was a local muslim imam and i said hey what's going on he said well, we're purchasing we purchased the building and i, oh, I said and i said I asked him, do you mind if I ask you how much you bought it for? And he said, he, with the price he gave me was half the price that we, that we offered. And oh my word. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Episcopal church sold this building that had been home to 
my church since 1873, generations and generations of people, not all of them were unbelieving like the, the generation when I first got there, uh, just sold it. And for such a cheap price to people who are worshiping a false, uh, a false system. It's, it was just devastating. So. so you, so if we were to summarize your story, you believe the Bible and what it says about sexuality, the Episcopal church stopped believing the Bible and installed a practicing gay bishop in 2003. This led to a crisis point in which you, you knew you couldn't stay. And when you spoke to your bishop about it, a deal fell apart for you to keep your property. So they took it from you and evicted you and then sold it to Muslims. Yes. <laughs> for half the price. <laughs> so. Well, I, mean, I have never heard of anything like that. So, so deeply unfaithful. Um, but I am so grateful for your faithfulness and um, I'm so sorry you had to go through all of that. I can only imagine though, as, as you're looking at current controversies that you're thinking, you kind of know where this goes. Um, the, the, the people on the other side of this, the, the liberals can be pretty ruthless with um, how they conduct things within the communion, even with those who are, who hold to a more orthodox point of view. Uh, you were the, the butt end of that. Uh, you were on the business end of um, some, some bishops who were ready to, to get, get rid of you guys. So, um, so, so tell us now then how, um, what's going on in the Anglican, the larger Anglican communion and um, how that, what's going to happen? Just explain to everybody. So, Maybe I should explain what the communion is. Uh, if you uh, remember the British Empire was fairly large. The sun never set in the British Empire. And wherever they went, they they planted uh, ex extensions of the Church of England. And as the church receded, as excuse me, as the empire receded, these, these churches that they set up in various uh, colonies became national churches, became... So there's the, there's the Anglican Church in, in Kenya. There's the Anglican Church of, of Nigeria. And these uh, these churches were uh, at first run and led by Englishmen. And ultimately, they they became led by by the former colonists. And the same thing is true with the Episcopal Church. So the uh, it's in the 19th century, the the uh, the, the communion was formed when all of the provinces decided that it'd be nice to have a, a, a an inter interdependent some interdependency some intercommunion between our provinces to respect our common heritage uh, now at the center of of the communion though is the church of england and in particular the archbishop of canterbury he has this he has a primary role he's not like a pope but he is the, the first among equals among all of the provinces there all the all the archbishops or bishops of the provinces the archbishop of canterbury is the first among equal he holds a signal position in in a communion um the communion is set up around four different uh instruments of, uh, which which were instruments of unity you might call them instruments of community of communion the he the archbishop archbishop, archbishop himself is one of them uh, another one is uh, the meeting of the primates Primates is the primates. A primate is the is the primary leader of a province. 
uh, usually an archbishop, sometimes it's a bishop. Uh, the Lambeth Conference, which is a, which is the meeting of all Anglican bishops every ten years, is a, is a third one. And then there's something called the Anglican Consultative Council, which is uh, made up of lay people and clergy, but it gets a it's a, it's a legislative body. So, but of those four instruments, the Archbishop of Canterbury is 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 so important. He's the one that, of course, he is he's one of the instruments himself, but he also is the one who convenes the primates meeting, and he's the one that convenes. Uh, the the gathering of bishops at at Lambeth. So now the importance of all that is that that when when the Church of England decides that it's going to bless same sex unions or bless secular uh, gay marriages or those involved in them, I know there's some nuance there. Uh, when that happens, then you have um, you have the core of the communion becoming corrupted. So, so there, there has been up until this time, there's been hope that the Church of England would not, would not take that step. And that the Archbishop of Canterbury at least would, would, would not go that far because the vast majority of Anglicans around the world are Orthodox and, and would never, would never countenance such a thing. So the hope was that the Arch, Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England wouldn't blow up the, the communion by taking the steps they've taken. But they have now. And so can you explain to us exactly what that measure is so that people understand? Because it's not a full on, oh, we're affirming gay marriages or gay marriage rights. What what exactly is it? So, well, it's 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 OK. English, uh, the, the English church, they have been uh, doing nuance been since before. <laughs> Even anything about nuance. They, these these guys are great at nuance. Uh, I will say though that um, that while the question of of sex, the, the act, the sex act, is somewhat absent from from the, the 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 recent document that's been approved by both Senate and the bishops, um, is, is there's a real silence about it. What's happened is the 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 Church of England has said, if two people who are in a gay civil union or in a gay quote unquote marriage uh, can come to the Church of England and they can be blessed. Now they'll, they'll, they're going to say, we're not blessing the relationship, we're, we're blessing the people. But if you go and look at the prayers that they've constructed for these blessings, it's very clear it, they're all there's they're, they're, the, the prayers say otherwise the prayers are actually blessing the relationships the church so, has oh, go ahead. i'm sorry so there it sounds to me that they're you know you say that they're nuanced but i mean isn't anglicanism famous for the middle way uh, <laughs> in other words they're they're trying to placate the people on the right and the people on the left and they're they're at least ostensibly they're trying to say to the conservatives, look, we haven't really blessed gay marriage yet. And they're saying to the liberals, look, here's a giant sop to gay marriage. Uh, we're we're doing both things at once, but really they're they're not. It, it seems to me that they're effectively it's a de facto blessing of of gay marriage, even though they're not calling it that. That that's exactly right. That, that that's a great summary. They have said. That the doctrine of marriage has not changed. They're, they're, they're still recognizing marriage itself 
holy matrimony itself is what they call it to be between a man and a, and a woman and they can't call a secular gay marriage holy matrimony but, which is but, fascinating because isn't that the they're same, gonna bless it they're gonna <laughs> right, bless they're gonna it, bless it. Right, 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 it's right. the same move that we saw the catholic church take in terms of their pastoral practice and what pope francis was sort of advocating for we're not changing our you know historic teaching on the definition of marriage but pastorally and even i think i've read some of the reporting come out of uh out of that conference and out of out of this move it's couched in pastoral practice and sensitivity um so is that what the anglican church is doing just sort of the same thing that we're seeing the catholic church do yes i mean the 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 document um it's called it's called a living living in love and faith and the the document is that the, the most people are responding to or is that the, the church of england's bishops uh uh declaration about a, an, an ongoing study of sexuality that, that had started in 2017 and is now concluded and and so they've they've, they've issued this this document and in it the, the second paragraph through is an apology to uh lgbtq people We've not loved you as God loves you. We've, we've rejected you. We haven't accepted you as you are. Uh, and, and so now we're, we're rectifying that by making sure that any any same-sex couple who comes to a church of England, a church, a parish in the Church of England is going to be welcomed, celebrated, accepted, affirmed. Um, well, well, good and, grief, Matt. I mean, it doesn't matter what your doctrine says. If you're just going to affirm unrepentant sexual people living in unrepentant sexual immorality, and you're going to say they're Christians, that's affirming. Right. Well, it is. It is. And the, the document itself says we about we, we as, as bishops disagree about whether or not uh, sexual activity should be something that these these relationships uh, have. So or you should know this earlier. <laughs> this is also kind of a strange thing. The, the Church of England had allowed clergy to enter into partnerships with people of the same sex so long as they promised there was no sexual activity going on. And they did the same thing with uh, it had all, a little bit like the revoice uh, position. You can be, you can have these blessed, blessed partnerships that, that at least you're telling us don't involve, don't involve sex. Well, now though the bishops are, disagreeing with that earlier some of the bishops are disagreeing with that earlier compromise and it, it doesn't seem that any questions are being asked at all about whether or not there's sexual activity in these relationships it doesn't matter uh, you can uh, you can bless them you can use these rights for them regardless I, I just keep thinking about what how this would cash out in a local church so you're talking to two baptists so we don't have a hierarchy above our church right so you know our congregation is our congregations are autonomous, so our ecclesiologies are so different from one another. Right. But even with those differences, this doctrine has to play out in a local church. And, and, and if I were to go to my church and say, hey, you know what? We don't bless uh, same-sex marriage, but we're going to bless all of you in your same-sex marriages. I just don't think that that would – I don't know how that would fly. Um our official doctrine is, is that we don't think that this is a marriage. However, we want to say that we're so happy that you're a faithful Christian walking in the, that everybody would think that that was spiritual schizophrenia and really just deeply unfaithful to scripture. It's, it's, it, 
ostensibly a middle way, but really it's just uh, a de facto affirming position. Right. I can see though how on the one hand, you're going to make everyone angry. You're going to make the, you're going to make the revisionist mad that you haven't gone the full route and you're going to make the, the Orthodox rule mad that you've violated, uh, violated scripture. But at the same time, you know, I can see if you're really, really, really trying hard um, to stay in the Church of England, if you're if you hold a, an Orthodox view, um, I, I've seen I've seen people who try to square this circle for 17 years now. Uh, people who, who I know and love personally, they're Orthodox, but they're remaining remaining in the Episcopal Church. Um, and and, and they, they'll grasp at straws. And I think this this I've already seen some people in the Church of England who are Orthodox grasping whatever straw they can. Oh look, they didn't. Uh, they're saying right here that uh, that the marriage is still between a man and a woman. And they're saying right here that you know they're, they're disagreeing about sexual uh, interaction within these partnerships, but they're not saying it's good yet. So a lot of this kind of way to to make whatever take whatever straw you can in a statement and stay in your parish but, but if you're a, let's just say that you're a you're a practicing um homosexual and you come to an episcopal church and you come to your rector pastor and you say you know i would like to be a part of this church i would like to follow jesus and i'm going to stay in my gay marriage uh, can I do that and be a member of this church? Doesn't the Episcopal pastor have to say, yes, you can do that? The the Episcopal church, the, okay, so Church of England, no, right? The Church of England, the, a, a pastor can say, I don't use these prayers that the bishops have given us, and I'm, I, I, I can't in good conscience do that. Um, the question comes, and the same thing in the Episcopal church, the question is, it comes, does he then have to make provision? for this parishioner to get the, the service done elsewhere. I think the question of whether or not that parishioner would be disciplined is I'm right. Not, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not asking about whether or not you would marry them. Let's yeah. just say they're already married and they're saying- We want a blessing. No, they're, they're not even saying we want a blessing. They're just saying, can I come be a communing member of this congregation, of this communion? Um, I want to- I want to follow Jesus and I'm, I am gay married happily. And I'm going to stay in that. Um, doesn't the Episcopal priest at that point say, well, yes, of course you can be a communing member with us. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think there's a choice now in the Episcopal church to, to enact any kind of uh, church discipline at all. But I think what I'm, Matt's saying is that there might be a question in the church of England, even with this new development, with the pastoral blessing that's been handed down, you're saying that, maybe a church of England priest or rector would have the option to not do I, the I, blessing. I, that's an open question. I think there might be a way for him to do that. There, there, there are the system in England is a lot different than the Episcopal church, but there are, it, it just seems to me that that question, whether or not a guy does the blessing, <laughs> that's important. I'm talking about just sinners yeah. who need salvation. Yeah. They're going to be told that they can be, walking in faithful communion with the church that they're christians well see denny there you're just you're you're seeing things too clearly you're not you're not you're not you don't have enough yeah i mean your... it seems like that that i mean <laughs> he's I, not I, winsome I, enough i appreciate here. That these i appreciate <laughs> that these priests have this horrible decision to make um but that that's not even the main thing it's who the church is recognizing as yeah. christians and the church is saying 
Yeah. We're going to recognize unrepentant sexual sinners mm -hmm. as Christians. These people are destroying themselves and, and they're, they're headed toward toward eternal destruction and eternal damnation. And uh, if you, if you're an Anglican priest, you, you put the collar on, you are not, you are not then acting as an individual, you're acting on behalf of Christ in the church. And, and to say to someone who's doing that to themselves, uh, I affirm you it's, it's, it, it goes beyond just pastoral malpractice. It's, it, you, the, 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 now we're talking about millstones and deep lakes. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 whether you realize it or not, you, you're one of the wolves. Exactly. You're, exactly. you're wearing the clothes of the sheep, but you're, you're something else underneath it would, it seemed to me. Yeah. So can you tell us then what's going on with this communion from the global South who've responded to this? To, can you tell us what they did and what it, what it means and how, where it, your church obviously is no longer a part of the Episcopal church, your ACNA, which is the uh, Anglican church of North America. I, am I correct? Now that's, you're not, your fellowship and communion is with an African bishop. Is that, do I understand this correctly? So the a lot of the a lot of, a lot of Episcopalian churches left the Episcopal Church and found refuge Episcopal oversight from African provinces or global South provinces. But in 2009, those provinces decided the that America needed its own province that was not the Episcopal Church, and they and they released our parishes to form the ACNA. So we are an Anglican province, and we're in communion with some provinces that are in communion with Canterbury, like Nigeria and Uganda and Kenya and those, those places. But we are not, um, we're not in communion with, with the Church of England. And so we're not officially part of the Anglican communion like they are. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So your, your fellowship then is with Orthodox brothers who are in Africa largely. Yes. So it, it, so it seems like the, colonized or saving the colonizers at this point absolutely that's one of the great one of the great uh things that god has done through this is he's he he's he saved he's saving um the west so I, I hope he's saving the west by by missionaries sent from from the global south which is which is a wonderful a beautiful thing so can you tell us then about this letter that the um, anglican primates in africa and the global south what 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 was it? So this this letter was sent by the Global South Fellowship of, of Anglican Churches, and there are I forget the number thirty nine provinces in the Anglican Communion. Uh, this this particular letter was was I think signed by ten of the Global South primates, twelve I'm sorry not ten twelve, and uh, and it wasn't signed by some uh, who who would agree with them, but are different, are part of a different organization called GAFCON, the Global uh, Anglican, uh, 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 my mind went blank, but, but Global Anglican something, or, or Group of Orthodox Global South uh, Churches were part of, of GAFCON. It's called GAFCON. That was one question I had coming yeah. in this conversation is what's the difference between GAFCON and this group that was formed, or the, this group that responded to the Development Church of England with this letter? What's how, how do they relate to one another? GAFCON is has been historically much less much less interested in going to the communion meetings. Uh, they don't. We won't take communion with bishops or 
or clergy who have taken the revisionist position on this. Uh, GAFCON has traditionally been more, more down the line solid um, on these questions. Now the Global South, uh, the Global South is also orthodox. I don't want you to get me wrong, but they've they've been more cooperative over over time with with. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury than GAFCON has. So, the, so that's for our listeners, GAFCON stands for, Google tells me, the Glo the Global Anglican Future Conference. Yes, thank you. I, and should, then, I should have that. And then this other group, then, so that's a big deal. If, if they're usually more cooperative, that they're planting their flag in the ground and they're saying, okay, this far and no farther. It is a big deal. The big, the big deal is, Everyone kind of expected them to put out a statement saying, oh, this is terrible. We, dis we disagree with what the Archbishop of Canterbury has done and what the Church of England has done. But but they have de-recognized. They're, they're, they're no longer recognizing the Archbishop of Canterbury as the, the, as the head of the communion, as the one who should convene the Lambeth Conference, as the one who should convene the... Um, the primates meetings. They're, they're essentially saying you, you you need to step down as an instrument of communion and all and on every level. So if if so, and you've got four instruments of unity. You said it was these two legislative bodies, I guess, and the uh, the archbishops himself. So doesn't that mean then they've basically evicted him? They've I mean they've vacated like three of your instruments of unity. Yeah, I mean, I'll read some language from it. The GFS, GSFA is no longer able to recognize the present Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, the Right Reverend uh, uh, Justin Welby, as the first among equals leader of the Global Communion. He sadly, he has sadly led his House of Bishops to make the recommendations that undergirded the General Synod motion. And goes on. And he, they don't, they don't recognize him anymore to hold those positions. That's that's huge. That has not happened in the last. So, um, last what does that years. mean then? Is he still the leader of the? worldwide Anglican communion or is he not? What, what does well, this mean? <laughs> it's interesting because a week before this came out, Justin Welby, who's the archbishop said that he might need to step away from being the first among equals and not, and not, not exercise the role in the communion that he, he does. And so the, the global South letter picked up on that and said, yes, that's, a, that's, that's exactly what you need to do. Subsequently, though, the Anglican Communion Office, don't get me started on these people, <laughs> the Anglican Communion Office released a, a, a statement essentially saying, well, what's going to have to happen is we're all going to have to meet together. And, and then the Archbishop has agreed that maybe while we're thinking about how the communion will go forward, he won't share those parts of the meeting. So... This is a, an interesting, I think, sneaky little move to play some judo with the global south. Get them and get them get them gathered. Uh, have the archbishop agree not to chair part of the meeting, but he's but implicit in that whole arrangement would be him still being archbishop and so, still being first principles. So, so the global south fellowship of Anglican churches, the GSFA, which is what we've been talking about which is different than GAFCON. It's a big deal that they're planting their flag in the ground. They represent nearly half of the world's estimated 100 million Anglicans. It, yeah. How is it that this one heterodox bishop over a heterodox church is controlling the majority of the church? Because it seems like the majority of the churches 
would be orthodox if you take into the worldwide movement, correct? Yes, yes. I mean, it has to do with the with the way the communion was established and the and the the, the rules of the communion, which place so much so much weight on the archbishop. The, so if the archbishop doesn't step down, the really only recourse I think the global south has is to just separate from from the communion and and reestablish something else. Because at that point, I think you'll have just the revisionist dioceses or provinces um, uh, centered around Canterbury, and we would have to center around something else. It, is the Anglican communion breaking apart? Is this it? Is this the is this the great schism that some have anticipated? I don't know. I I, I think almost everything hinges on on whether the Archbishop of Canterbury honors the 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 words that he said before the statement came out. Um, if he does honor that, if he if he says, okay, you're right, I need to step away from this and let and let the global south take leadership, then we might have an opportunity for a completely changed communion. Because if say the primates were to get together and, and vote on who would be the next uh, leader of the communion and they say elected the Archbishop of Nigeria, everything changes. You could then start having some actual discipline being enacted against the Episcopal Church and against the Church of Canada and, and the Church of England. Yeah. That would be, that would be a, I, that's, I, I'm, I've seen, I've seen Anglicans snatch defeat from the jaws of victory so many times that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, not going to. Hard um, to get your hopes up. Yeah, it's hard to get my hopes up. But I think most, more than likely that won't happen. The Archbishop of Canterbury is going to try and find some way to keep hold of power, and then the 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 car the the ball will be in the in the global South court. Are you are you going to are you going to go along with this, or are you going to actually uh, stand behind the words of your document and and well, split if it? if the Archbishop doubles down, they would have to if they're going to stick to their guns, they're going to that will be a schism at that yes. point. Yes. So, um, or unless they back down. Which that's my their letter doesn't their letter does not sound like they have any intention of backing down. They the, just basically said that the the Church of England, the, the leader of the Church of England, Archbishop, is not a Christian. Yes. Well, <laughs> but not only that, it's not just the Church of it's not just the Archbishop, it's not just Justin Welby. I mean, the vote out of the Synod, the Synod was 250 to 181. So even regardless of what happens with Welby. We're talking about the Church of England leadership in mass has affirmed this position. So whether or not he steps away, it seems like uh, at least the the implication of that letter is it's not just Welby who's heterodox. It's the Church of England that's become heterodox with yeah. this decision. Right. When they say when they're saying that he no longer has the authority to lead the communion, they aren't talking about him personally. They're talking about the the office of Archbishop of Canterbury. So whoever they put in there at this point, unless 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 England elects, unless England appoints a thoroughly orthodox archbishop who cleanses the church, yeah, that's that's right. It, it doesn't matter who is in the office. They're right not going to do office. that though. Yeah, no, they're not going to do that. <laughs> they would never do that. Well, maybe. Well, that's, never, not, but... that's not the only question that came out of this this synod. Um, we talked about just last week. Uh, this decision to form this study committee about whether or not we should use gender neutral language to, you know, to talk about God, all kinds of things are are moving out of this synod. And that's the question I have is, you know, obviously the ACNA, as you explained already, is not currently in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, not currently in communion with the Church of England in that same way. Um, what is the future of Anglicanism in your opinion? 
I think I see two futures. I, I do think ultimately, maybe longer than I hope, but ultimately there will be two distinct Anglicanisms. There'll be uh, Anglican entities. I think one will be uh, centered largely around the global South and will be Orthodox. And uh, that will be where if Anglicanism is going to be renewed in the world, it will be, it'll be from that, that grouping. And I think you're going to see a, a dwindling um, dying set of Western churches uh, centered around Canterbury uh, that, that just continues the, the current trajectory, which is toward um, completely empty churches and, um, and, and dead, um, spiritually dead people. So. Aren't those churches largely empty in any way? I mean, it, it isn't, yeah. I think the last I heard it was less than 1% of the population of Great Britain are members of the state church, the, the church of England. I mean, nobody's right. nobody there. They're not representing That's, like real congregations now, even. That's what I was saying. That's what I was mentioning earlier. I think that the, the, just on a, on a basis of pure pragmatism, uh, people should recognize, revisionists should recognize that, that the further they go from Orthodox Christianity, the, the, the weaker their churches become, the less people come because there's not, there's nothing to come to. You're, you're, uh, you're, you know, there's nothing, there's no there, there. You, you walk into a church that just basically tells you everything that you believe is right. And everything you're doing is good. You're, you're, you have no, why would I, why would I waste time on a Sunday morning to get some, to something like that? Um, but the thing is they're going to survive and you have, the, the Episcopal church, it could have, it could have a, a, a yearly average Sunday of attendance of 500 people across the country and still probably, there'd be massive Episcopal churches surviving. And the reason for that is dead people's money. A lot of these, a lot of these churches are, are still going because of historic endowments that pay the clergy salaries, pay the organist, pay the paid choir, pay the, the upkeep of the building. And so you can have, you can be an Episcopal priest in a massive historic church with two people attending and you're fine. So, so yeah. Wow, that is a picture of decline and death, and yes. it is—it's a tragedy that that would be leading the the communion right now. I mean, the heterodoxy has already killed their own churches. Um, that they would be wanting to insist on that and export that. I mean, we saw what it did in your life. It it led to your church building being sold to Muslims. <laughs> they would rather have Muslims inhabiting that building than somebody who actually believes the Bible. Um, it, it just reminds you, you know, you know, Paul says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Well, the answer to that is really none. At some point you have to call a spade a spade and yet you can't walk together anymore. Yeah. In fact, this is, this is one area where I, I have a lot of, a lot of fear for evangelicalism. And, and that is that, uh, there was a, there was a move early on in the Episcopal church to say, Okay, well, we can disagree about this, but still walk together. We're, we'll, we'll, this is like the question of whether or not Christians can drink wine, or whether or not this is adiaphora, right? We, we 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 can we can we can have completely different opinions and still walk together, is the phrase Anglicans like to use. Um, and a lot of the energy uh, that we spent in the early years was combating that idea, showing no, this is not adiaphora. If, if if we're talking about since we are talking about a sin that Paul says will keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. 
any way you slice that, that's not Adiaphora. So um, I see that happening in the, in the evangelical realm, though. I see a oh, lot yeah. of no question. You know, platformed evangelicals trying to say, well, you know, we disagree about this, but but we can still call one another brothers and sisters. And, and, and no, you really can't. I mean, the doctrine of marriage is central to the gospel because marriage is about the gospel. If the husband, you, no, but, you've already watched this train leave the station. You know yeah. where this goes. Yeah, I, this yeah. this doesn't stop at oh we just agree to disagree. I mean that's a deeply unfaithful position already because you're you're treating something that could send somebody to hell as if it's you know a different view on baptism or something. Um, so, but so it never stops there though. I mean that that's a way station onto full affirmation, which is what's happened in the Episcopal Church uh, pretty right. much. So you, because I mean, to, because to get to that point, you've already got to you've already got to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to come to the item come to the place where sex, sex itself is is an adiaphora. You have to discard so much of of the New Testament, and the Old Testament, um, that nothing's going to stop you from continuing that process of discarding and 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 uh, deconstructing. It's just going to. Well, and how away. much of that is done under the guise of under the label of love? I mean the. This whole conference, you know, coming in, uh, into that synod, living love and faith, but this is what happens when you untether love from truth or your definition of love, at least. It's not loving, uh, and certainly not the faith that we were delivered. Yeah, it's such a that the the misuse of that word has been so so. Uh, it's just it's been that's that's been the big that's been the way that the revisionists have been able to peel so many people away from orthodoxy by this appeal to, to love. And, and what they're, what they're really talking about, really appealing to is eroticism, not, uh, not love, but they've, they've, they've stuck, stuck every kind of physical sexual act and under that category. And then when you disagree with it, you're not, you're not loving. And I know you guys have talked about that before, I'm sure uh, many times, but, but that, that I, I, I am. Um, I wish, I wish that the our our people in the Episcopal Church had been uh, far more well versed in the Scriptures before this thing broke uh, broke against against us. Because I don't think I I think that if if Episcopal clergy had been preaching ex, ex, expositionally through the Scriptures for 20 years before 2003 that what happened in 2003 could not have happened mm -hmm. because people would have recognized the misuse of language, the misuse, the, 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 the propaganda, propagandistic attempts to twist the scriptures to say something they don't say. And they would have, and they would have never gone with it. But, but the, the problem is the Episcopal church, people in the Episcopal church stopped loving the Bible decades, decades yeah. before this, the clergy stopped loving the Bible and the people stopped loving the Bible. And, and so we just collapsed. Really, the all of these the, the sexuality issues are just a manifestation of a a failure of the authority of scripture within churches, and it, it's interesting because when I think of the Episcopal Church, I'm thinking of a historic mainline church, and the mainlines have largely gone theologically liberal. They've had formal a formal slide and you know denunciation of the integrity and authority of scripture. For, for a long time, a, a long time before gay marriage was even, you know, on, on anybody's radar screen, the, the authority of scripture was being eroded in those churches. But I would say the same thing for a lot of what's going on in evangelicalism now, even though 
there's not a formal adopting of theological liberalism in all these places. Some places, I think you see encroachments of theological liberalism. I do think you'd see a lot of uh, pragmatism and a, a, a dethroning of the regulating uh, function of the word of God within the community. And people come to church and they do, maybe their maybe their doctrinal statement says they believe in inerrancy. But they don't hear preaching that reflects that. They don't hear preaching expositionally through the scriptures from week to week to week. They're getting sort of therapeutic, feel good, you know, encouragement sessions. And what that means is, is that you never, um, you, you never are formed doctrinally. You're never really formed in in the faith. And so when you have um, these challenges from the culture become so acute, like it is now over issues of sexuality and gender. People are totally unprepared for it, and they're manipulated emotionally uh, away from the the truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So I'm, all I'm saying is, is that what everything you're testifying about, you know, what's happened within the Episcopal Church and the larger Anglican Communion, I think it's happening in, in more than just one space, and it can happen by more than just one means. There's, you know, a lot of different ways that people can dethrone the authority of Scripture as the regulating reality within their church. And I think that we're seeing that playing out in slow motion, um, but nevertheless playing out even in a lot of evangelical spaces. Absolutely. I, I think one of the, I think the attractional church model, the, 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 the secret sensitive model earlier than that, um, kind of primed the pump for it because the whole the premise there is, you know, we've, we've got to, we've got to shape the church so that it appeals to the preferences of those um, who are who are visiting, who are coming in, not even Christians, it's people who are who are who are, who are in, attracting to our services. And if, if you if you already set up your church where you're looking to to your whole idea is to is to conform to the preferences of those outside, well, when the culture shifts like it has, um, and, and the preferences of those outside are suddenly utterly contrary to the gospel, how do you how do you break that? How do you how do you pull, push the push the brakes and stop? stop the attractionally attractionalizing you can't and so you know you see a lot of prominent um uh prominent evangel evangelicals then going soft on 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 homosexuality because they want to keep their big church they want to keep people coming they don't want to sound mean so yeah matt we are so grateful for you we are thankful for your story we're thankful for you taking time to explain to us the intricacies <laughs> of your ancient and sprawling Anglican bureaucracy, <laughs> which confuses a lot of us on the outside. Um, thank you for explaining all this and um, trying to help us to see what's at stake within the Anglican communion. I just want you to know that for us, we are so encouraged by faithful churches, faithful pastors. I'm so encouraged by your testimony and how the Lord used just the regular preaching of the word to save people and to you know, replant essentially a faithful church there in, in your community. So that is a wonderful word. I'm also grateful um, for the Africans who are, are basically, it seems like saving the day um, for the Anglican communion. So um, is there anything we should pray for in terms of the immediate future? One final thing that you could tell us that we should pray for in terms of what needs to happen next? Sure, I would I would ask that uh, we all people who are listening to pray for uh, for discernment on the part of global South primates and bishops. 
there's a lot of there's often a lot of money offered to them, a lot of a lot of incentive uh, to uh, to compromise. And I would pray that God would uh, uh, give them the, the grace and the, and the boldness and the courage to to fulfill the words they've written, to act in keeping with the words they've written in this statement. Well, I'm going to actually, I'm just going to pray for them right now. And, um, and we'll end with, with that. Father, thank you so much for Matt. Thank you for his testimony. And uh, we do want to pray for these brothers in the global South who are taking a stand on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Father, I pray that you would fill them with the spirit, give them discernment, give them resolve to follow Christ come what may. Help them to see clearly the path forward. Help them to follow you. And Lord, I pray that their courage and their clarity would be an, an encouragement to other churches and other pastors that are faltering and that are, that are not standing fast. So Father, we pray for your people within the Anglican Communion worldwide that they would rise up and that they would reflect the voice of their Savior, King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.